We've done nearly a hundred podcasts since this series began, and nearly all of them dealt with the world and the work of William Shakespeare. Every once in a while, though, you have to change things up. And with that in mind, we present to you a story of the one, the only, Richard Shakespeare. From the Fulcher Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Fulcher's director. I'm going to go out on a limb here and bet that you probably didn't even know that there was a Richard Shakespeare. If that's true, it's probably because we know far less about him than we do about his much more famous brother. William Shakespeare had three brothers, and not much is known about one of them, which makes Richard Shakespeare, a man near to greatness without ever being great himself, a perfect subject for historical fiction. Bernard Cornwell is a writer of historical fiction. He's best known for the Sharp series, more than 20 books and stories about a character named Richard Sharp, a rifleman turned officer during the Napoleonic Wars that was made into a TV series in Britain in the 1990s. Another Cornwell series about the 9th century kingdom of Wessex became the TV show The Last Kingdom. Now, Bernard Cornwell has turned to the world of the Elizabethan theater, and his newest novel, Fools and Mortals, is a tale of love, intrigue, opulence, and violence, all narrated by John and Mary Shakespeare's seventh child, Richard. We call this podcast, Masters, Here Are Your Parts. Bernard Cornwell is interviewed by Barbara Bogave. I would think that it would be daunting to sit down and say, right, I'm a historical novelist, and now I'm going to write a novel featuring William Shakespeare. And then you literally put words into the mouth of the greatest wordsmith who ever lived. It's terrifying. (laughs) Exactly. It made me think, well, what is your pro and con list as as you think about writing historical fiction about Shakespeare? Well, what I really wanted to write about was putting on a play. Um, And then if you're going to do it about a Midsummer Night's Dream, you're rather stuck with this guy. You've got to. Um, <laughs> but how did you think about taking him on? What what kind of, of man did you imagine him to be or did you want to portray in this story as a man and an artist? I think essentially a theatre professional. And what's so fascinating is that the theatre is really a brand new occupation. Um, the, the, the very first playhouse wasn't built until Shakespeare was 10 years old. And once you build a permanent theatre, you change everything. If, if you're touring around the country, if on Monday you're in Warwick and Tuesday in Kenilworth and Wednesday you're in Stratford, you can do the same play in each place. But then you build a permanent playhouse. Now the audience is the same, night after night after night, week after week, month after month. You need new material all the time. Once the theatre is permanent, playwrights come into their own. So above everything, Shakespeare is a theatre professional. He's a an actor, he's an impresario, he's a writer. So I I didn't want him to be a sort of ethereal poet, the Swan of Avon, sitting there waiting for inspiration. I don't think he did wait for inspiration. There was too much pressure on him to produce work. Apparently, you also didn't want him to be the protagonist, because the story is told from the point of view of his brother, which seems a, a very ingenious workaround. Of this problem. Well, the nice thing about 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 his brother Richard is that is that he actually existed, um, and the even nicer thing about him is that we know nothing about him. Uh, we have his birth date, we have his death date, and I think there's one court record where he was fined for not attending church, and, and that's it. That is the sum total that we know about Richard Shakespeare. 
But of course, you want the fiction to be based on, on a certain amount of reality. I want to dig into that a little bit more. But but first, I have to ask you, you have such a long and, and really distinguished career writing mostly about wars. What gave you the idea of writing a historical novel about Shakespeare? I, I fell among actors 12 years ago. I mean, I, I've never acted in my life, and I now live in the summer on Cape Cod. And there's a little theater there called the Monomoy Theater, and it's a marvelous theater. It exists to give drama students from all across North America a chance to play in in a summer rep theater. Now, they do an incredible job, and because they're drama students, some of them are postgrads, some are undergrads, they have huge skills. Uh, But they don't play the sort of what we call the grown-up parts. I mean, it just doesn't look right having a 25-year-old playing Prospero. So normally equity actors are brought in, but local people like me are allowed to be spear carriers. And somehow I've sort of um, graduated from carrying a spear to, in fact, playing Prospero. And I'd never done this before. And I had, I don't know, I suppose a reasonably well-educated person's knowledge of Shakespeare, which doesn't really add up to very much. But being in his plays is the way of learning about his genius, about learning how wonderful the plays are. And over the years, I don't know, I played Henry IV, Toby Belch, and and came to love him, came to be fascinated by him, and so went and started to read as much as I could about him. And then, considering what my day job is, it be, I thought, let's do, let's do a book about it. Let's do a book about putting on a play in 1595. How different was it to putting on a play in 2017? Well, and the book really gives us an idea of that. I mean, you're a real fly on the wall of this experience that you've had in, in the theater. And I don't want to give away too much, but the principal action involves the, the first ever performance of A Midsummer Night's Dream. So first, why that play? Well, because it's a fun play. I mean, the extraordinary thing is in 1595, Shakespeare wrote two plays. If he'd died at the end of 1594, I mean, yeah, the scholars would know that there was a playwright once called William Shakespeare. And he'd written Richard III, Comedy of Errors, um, but really he'd written nothing of any great moment. And then suddenly in 1595, he writes two of his great plays. The first, the great comedy, A Midsummer Night's Dream, and then, or at the same time, or just before, his first great tragedy, Romeo and Juliet. And I think, well, one, they're still the most popular of all Shakespeare's plays, both on, on both sides of the Atlantic. Those are the two that are perform most often. I thought, well, I, I didn't want to write about putting on a tragedy because the, the book would be, end up being frightfully gloomy. Um, I've always loved Midsummer Night's Dream. I've, I've acted in it twice. And... People are familiar with it, I think, or a lot of people are. So I, I was just very fond of it, and I think it's as simple as that. Well, let's give people a taste of your treatment of it. Uh, w- would you read something for us? And I'm thinking of a scene in which the uh, the troop, Lord Chamberlain's men, are rehearsing uh, Midsummer in Blackfriars for a wedding. And, and Richard Shakespeare is not in this scene. He's, he's watching the others perform. That's right. He'd just come back, in fact. He'd, he'd, he'd come to the hall. They're not, in, they're not in the theater. They're in the great hall of a house because the play has been, has been um, commissioned privately by the Lord Chamberlain for a performance at his granddaughter's wedding. And he's just come in from the rain. I went close to the generous fire, still trying to dry out my rain-soaked clothes. Richard Burbage, Henry Condell, Alexander Cook and Kit Saunders were being rehearsed by Alan Rust while the other players looked on. Alexander and Kit were playing the girls, and they were at the front of the imaginary stage while the two men watched from the back. 
Kit was small for his age, while Alexander was tall, and my, my brother had written words to fit their stature. You puppet, you, Alexander screeched. When we had read the scene the first time, people had laughed at the fight between the two girls, but the weather seemed to have dampened all our spirits, and no one seemed to have any enthusiasm. Move further to the left, Russ told Kit. A gust of wind splattered the high window with rain and flickered the flames in the hearth. How low am I, thou painted maypole? Speak, Kit shouted at Alexander. How low am I? I am not yet so low that my nails can reach unto thine eyes. He ran across the stage, hands crooked, to claw at Alexander's eyes. Scream at her as you run, Alan told Kit. I don't want silence, and don't let her reach you, he added to Alexander. Let her get close, then run for your life. Take shelter behind the two men. Do I follow her? Kit asked. No, just stop where she was standing. Turn and face her, but you're not going to attack her while she's with the men. Now let's do it again. The real stage was still being built at the other end of the hall, filling the big space with the sounds of saws and hammers. Alan Rust was looking over Isaiah Humble's shoulder to read the lines when Isaiah suddenly sneezed. Oh, for God's sake, Isaiah! Rust recoiled from the sneeze. Sorry, Isaiah said, then sneezed again. Russ snatched up the pages and moved away from Isaiah. Kit, he called, go from, uh, you juggler, you canker blossom, you thief of love. Sorry, Isaiah said. He looked ill, but who would not feel ill in this miserable, cold, wet weather? My brother came to the fireplace. We're rehearsing Titania and Oberon tomorrow, he told me, and the mechanicals on Friday. Do you know your lines? All of them. So you don't have to stay now, he said pointedly. Come back on Friday. I'll wait for the rain to stop. It's not going to stop. It will never stop. The sky is as black as Satan's ass. He turned to watch Kit scream and run across the stage. Faster, Alan Russ shouted. Run like you mean to kill her. Do it again. This seems like so much fun to write. I mean, di- director yelling at actors and actors being difficult. Is this pulled straight out of your Midsummer's experience? <laughs> On the whole, no. <laughs> I, uh, I, I think perhaps we're gentler in the, in the 20th, 21st century. I mean, I have seen directors lose it, but uh, the cast would still come together, read through it, find out where to be on the stage... They'd bond and then have all the fun of actually performing. In in large strokes, it hasn't changed much. But but the the details, though, and given that it's not good to know too much when you're writing historical fiction, as you just said, what kind of research did you do to write convincingly about uh, Elizabethan theater and 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 these domestic and court scenes in the book? <laughs> it's very nice of you to use the word convincingly. Um, <laughs> Well, you know, I did what you always do, which is you, you read everything. And, and I literally do mean everything. And, and I suppose the reading to go into this was, was about five years of reading. Uh, and, and in the end, you're sort of deviling down into some really obscure books. Um, in the end, like all historical novels, you chuck away about 98% of the research uh, because it simply becomes irrelevant. But... I was surprised by a lot of what I discovered about the Tudor theatre and and excited by it. And it really is an, a most extraordinary period because you do have here the beginning of a, a profession, of a beginning of an industry. And yet it, it, that didn't exist 
And you sprinkle those details in. For instance, in passing, you mentioned the box office, so-called because the boxes that took the playgoers' pennies were emptied on the table inside, and it was kept locked. And there we have the box office. And then you have the boxes. In fact, they got more sophisticated a bit later. They started making um, enormous pottery, basically, balls. Uh, And when you couldn't open them, they just had a slit for the coin in the top. And you take those back to the box office and break them. And, and when they recently excavated, I think it was the Rose Theatre, um, they found you know, a great heap of these little pottery scraps, which had once been the, the, the balls, which were taken back and broken. And this really, I mean, there are Easter eggs like this sprinkled throughout. And, and people who know their history through and through will have, who are listening will have to forgive me that I didn't know things like Elizabethan dental hygiene, life hacks. <laughs> you know, a character says Richard should keep his teeth white by grinding up cuttlefish bones and mixing them with salt and vinegar. You, you, could, um, you could do an experiment tonight, Barbara. Who knows? <laughs> um, but Richard, of course, is playing girls. And just like an actor today, he wants to look his best. So it's very important to him to look after his teeth. And there are also wonderful scenes of theater craft as well uh, in, in the 16th century that, that are rooted in fact, for instance, how they dealt with blood in the theater, the pig's bladder. It was sheep's blood in a pig's bladder, I think it was, wasn't it? Yes, and they'd hide it under a cloak, right? Yes, well, you'd hide it anywhere you could and, and, and then pierce it and the, the blood would all gush out. And you describe the, the wonderful lengths that, that they went to to disguise these men as women. At one point, there's a scene in which the, uh, the troops, uh, seamstress or costumer, or also makeup artist, drops juice of belladonna into Richard's yes. eyes. Which they did, which, which made your pupils bigger. Fascinating. Um, and also so pig's you, fat you, and soot around the eyes for coal, right? I know, yes. And, 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 and lipstick. And uh, I mean, it was, I mean, this was part of the reason, of course, why the Puritans so absolutely hated the theater. Uh, I mean, it was bad enough that women were being shown on stage, but it was even worse that, that they were being played by boys. There's another interesting area of research I imagine you got into that you have um, introduced in the in the book, which is you describe at one point how audience reaction depended upon the setting, that the reaction in the theater would be different from the audience reaction in a nobleman's house, which is where these plays, as you said, often were staged if they were commissioned or court before the queen. I think you had to work harder probably in a nobleman's house. I mean, they were more likely to be drunk and more likely to be bored. Uh, but we do know, for instance, that audiences could be incredibly rowdy. I mean, I can't remember. There's somebody's diary in the sort of 1570s or 1580s. I'm pretty sure it was the Lord Chamberlain's men go to put on a play at Gray's Inn in front of the students. And they start the play. And the students riot. They say, we don't want that play. We want another play. And I think they want a comedy of errors. And so the actors in the end threw up their hands and said, well, give us a minute and we'll, we'll turn it round. And so they did. They put on a different play for them. We know that audiences threw things. We also know that audiences you know, were, were extraordinarily appreciative. But not necessarily at court or in, in a private setting. At, at court, if the Queen was there, they were certainly not going to... I mean, the curious thing is, is that although the, the, we think of the Globe as the sort of birth of English theatre, in the end, it was the Hall Theatre, what's called the Hall Theatre, that took over. And in 1603, Shakespeare's company actually bought a hall in Blackfriars to put on plays indoors. And once you're indoors, again, everything changes. You've got to light it, which means candles. And once you have candles, candles are not going to burn for two hours of a play. They need to be trimmed. So you get acts and you get an interval. 
And the audience is different. They're not, they're not standing in front. There are not 2,000 people there. Hall theatres usually sat between four and 600, so they had to pay more. Well, getting back to your book, the plot of your book, Fools and Mortals, it turns on another theatre trying to get their hands on Shakespeare's scripts. Yes, villains at last. Um. <laughs> Fill us in, though, on, on the background of just how precious or valuable scripts were in 16th century London and, and this burgeoning theatre industry. Well, they're incredibly valuable because there's no copyright. Um, I mean, we have the theatre, which is Shakespeare's playhouse. And then across the river, very close to where the globe will be built, there is the Hope, uh, which is also, that um, was the Lord Admiral's men. Now... If, for instance, somebody from the Lord Admiral's men had got hold of Romeo and Juliet, the, the play, before the theatre did it, there's nothing to stop them putting that play on, and there's nothing Shakespeare can do about it. He's got no recourse in law. Uh, so the script is very valuable. You're probably going to play Romeo and Juliet, probably going to do a season of maybe 10 or 11 performances, not many more, uh, but that's 2,000 people, all of them paying a penny each, some of them paying a lot more. So there's a lot of money involved. Once the play had been done, once you'd exhausted your audience and there was no chance of, of filling the theatre anymore, then you could publish the play and anybody could do it. But yes, before the play was performed, at the beginning of its career, a play is a very valuable product. So clearly you knew a lot, but also, of course, you have to take license to make things up when you sit down to write. I do. And that's so tricky. I, I wonder how you <laughs> navigate when to be faithful to history and when to depart from it, because there, there are always going to be nitpicky types who say, oh, it didn't happen that way. They didn't steal Romeo and Juliet. No, that is made up. The, the, the villains in this case are not the Hope Theatre. Um, the, it's the Rose, which was under construction. And I invent people except for the owner of the Rose who's not invented. But, but it had happened. I mean, scripts were stolen and none of Shakespeare's as far as we know, but it's fiction. I mean, if you, if you don't like reading things that are made up, then don't write historical fiction. I, I can recommend some really incredibly dull books on the Tudor theatre and you can tuck into them instead. <laughs> so you don't think about that kind of reader when you write? No, because I, if that kind of reader doesn't like historical novels, they've got no business reading my books. I would much rather take someone who's just going to be excited by the discovery of the Tudor theatre. And I hope that they might then go on to learn more about it. There are some actually very good books about the Tudor theatre. I hope even more that, that, that I'll actually persuade some people to go and find a production of A Midsummer Night's Dream and go and watch it because it's such a hell of a lot of fun. Have you had readers, though, who have have taken issue with things in this book? Oh, gosh, yes. I mean, you, we, there's, as I say, there's always a helpful reader to point out your mistakes. <laughs> uh, and I wrote some books about 7th century Britain and got this very strict letter that there were no snowdrops in Britain. Then, well, I hadn't a clue I'd put snowdrops in, you know. You live with them. You know, I mean, Shakespeare made mistakes. He had, was it billiards in ancient Rome, I think, is one of them. Um, you know, the coast of Bohemia. Uh, you can tell that some of his plays are written in a hurry. I mean, he gives Prospero in, in The Tempest a nephew on the island. Uh, it's only one line. And if you think about it, the nephew is going to complicate the plot terribly. So he just forgets him. He never, never appears again, but he never actually got crossed out in the manuscript. When you write at the speed he wrote, when you don't have the, the, the editing facilities and printing facilities we have, you're bound to get mistakes. And equally well, I, you know, I can't think of any historical novelist who doesn't make mistakes. 
And specifically about this book, have you gotten any comments? Yeah, I did. I, I, I had uh, most people when they write actually are very charming about it. And and uh, he said you have far too many chairs. If you if you look at Tudor wills, they didn't have chairs; they had stools. I mean, he was very nice about it. And <laughs> That's not that, true, so, though. I mean, there are chairs in Shakespeare. In fact, we we knew you had had this criticism, and our Folger editors had plenty of references at their fingertips to chairs, including from Henry the Sixth, Part Two, in which they reference uh, "Thy chair days, thus to die in ruffian battle." Uh, that is the. That's end of right. That I actually wrote back and said, "Blame it on my age. It's my chair days," and um, but but no. I mean, it's fine. I, I I'm really not going to object to that. I mean, it, it you you do get some silly people who who want to sort of crow over it, but but really that is so rare. It's so rare, and I have to say, Barbara, that that. Ninety-nine percent of the messages I get on the website and, and through email are appreciative. Well, teasing out this, what was real, what's not, what's made up, uh, you also present Will Kemp, and you make him out to be very entertainingly someone like John Belushi, just a full-on <laughs> wild party animal, and also a kind of unpleasant bully off stage and maybe sometimes on stage. What informed? I that? think he may well have been. Certainly, there, there's some. Small evidence that there was some ill blood between them. I mean, probably Will Kemp was far, far more popular than Shakespeare himself. And uh, if Will Kemp was going to be in a play, people would come. Now, that's incredibly valuable property uh, because Will Kemp is funny. He's, he's a great acrobat. He's, uh, he's very much a physical actor. You can tell from the roles that Shakespeare writes for him. But we, Shakespeare also, in Hamlet, uh, when the prince gives the players his instructions... I mean, he's specific about, you know, you will speak just the words written down for you and no more. <laughs> because the clowns in Shakespeare's plays were famous for, for suddenly going off script. Um, and Will Kemp loved to have badinage with the audience. And this would obviously, in some cases, spoil the play because the play would be going along just as it was supposed to. And suddenly Will Kemp goes off at a tangent and starts having a furious row with somebody in the audience at, at, at this person's expense. When Will Kemp leaves, um, another clown took over called Robert Arnim, um, and he was much more of uh, an intellectual clown. It's wordplay, which is frankly why the clowns in Shakespeare's later plays are not nearly as funny as the clowns in the early ones, if we're going to be honest. Well, one example where you do take a lot of poetic license involves the origins of Pyramus and Thisbe as it's played in A Midsummer Night's Dream. And why don't, why don't we get back to, to the book? We, if you could, read that passage in which Richard remembers the first play his brother oh, William ever wrote. the first play. Yeah, it's... it's um, this is totally made up, obviously, completely made up. And, there, and there's that period in Shakespeare's life, which is the, the mystery period, when we really don't know what he was doing, which is more or less between the time of his marriage, which was when he was 18, and five or six years later. And there are all sorts of theories. I mean, some people have him in, in, in Lancashire um, being a tutor in a house. And, and other people say, oh, no, he went abroad and served as a soldier. What, what I find interesting is that um, Aubrey, the, the 17th century gossip, talked to William Beeston, who was the son of Christopher Beeston, who was in Shakespeare's company, and he said, well, no, Shakespeare actually was a school teacher in those years. Although um, we, there's the, no consensus on this, as you say. There there's are absolutely of, no consensus, yeah. no. And, and uh, you know, I mean, should we go and look at this early play, which didn't exist? <laughs> Let's. 
<laughs> I remembered my brother's very first play. I had been ten years old at the time, and he'd been twenty, just two years married, and teaching in a village school near Stratford. Sir Robert Throckmorton, a great landowner at nearby Corton, wanted what he called an interlude for his granddaughter's wedding, and my brother obliged by writing it. The interlude, really a short play, was called Dido and Acerbus and was performed by my brother, who played the villain, by one of his pupils, who played Dido, and by a half-dozen other local men, all craftsmen. They rehearsed for at least three weeks, and because Sir Robert was generously open-handed, folk from the surrounding villages were invited to watch the performance. The story, as everyone who's been to school knows, is a tragedy that ends with Dido committing suicide by hurling herself onto a blazing fire. What persuaded my brother that it was a good idea to celebrate a wedding with a play about death is a mystery, but the tragedy, instead of provoking tears, was first greeted by nervous laughter, which grew and grew until folk could not contain their mirth, and the whole audience, gentry and commoners alike, had tears running down their cheeks. Sir Robert, far from being angry at the disaster, declared it the best entertainment he had ever seen, but my brother was mortified. I asked him once whether he'd kept a copy, and he had scowled at the question, then muttered darkly that it had shared Dido's fate. I burned it. The interlude had ended with the heroine's fiery death. My brother had first thought of using iron braziers filled with burning logs to create the crucial scene, but Sir Robert had feared for the safety of his house, and so instead six of my brother's pupils, none older than ten, were dressed in red cloaks, red hoods and red gloves. We are flames, one of them helpfully announced as they filed onto the makeshift stage where they crouched at the platform's edge and then slowly rose, swaying from side to side and waving their hands above their heads as they chanted over and over, We are flames, we are fire. Meanwhile, the heroine, clothed in a white gown far too big for the player's small body, writhed in her death agony and tried to make her lines of defiance heard. Like the rest of the company, the boys had been brave, forging ahead with their lines despite the laughter filling the hall, and all of them, boys and men alike, were richly rewarded by Sir Robert. My mother laughed with everyone else, though Anne, my brother's wife, was furious, asserting that her husband had shamed the family. There we go. So that is just this lovely bit of fiction that you It's purely fiction, conjured yes. up. Uh, but I suppose to give the reader an idea... Um, if you like, of the roots of, not quite the roots of drama, that would be the mystery plays, but, but the sort of drama that was going on in the country. There's an awful lot of amateur drama. And it, it would be along that li those lines. It would be classical. It would be a classical story. And it would be acted by amateurs. Um, so that was one thing I wanted to do. The other thing I, I also wanted to do was, it was to actually give them a tiny, tiny taste of plays not written by Shakespeare, which we never, ever perform today. Um, which, is, which, if you like, was the staple diet of the theatre. We know, for instance, that the Globe, like the Hope, like the Rose, like the, 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 the theatre itself, they all did about 30 plays a year, which, if you consider they were closed uh, for Lent, is a lot. I think, so, I, think so so I, I, I put this whole thing, this whole scene in the category of one of the great joys of reading this novel, which is that it punctures the sacred Shakespeare uh, myth over and over again in in a really delightful way. I mean, here we see one of Shakespeare's dogs <laughs> just utterly <laughs> fall flat. Well, well, he he yes, Dido. The, you know, my my invented play is a dog, but um, 
by 1595, he's writing anything but dogs. And, and there, I, I hope that although his brother, Richard, who again is really invented out of whole cloth, um, is at loggerheads with William for much of the book, I hope my admiration comes through. He's by no means perfect. I mean, within a year of the events of the novel, uh, he's going to have a restraining order clapped on him by the magistrates. And the troubled relationship between these brothers is really the heart of the book. Uh, his brother Richard's opinion of Shakespeare, it does balance out the positive and this sacred cow <laughs> image of, of Shakespeare in a way. I mean, he see, his brother is cold and self-serving and untrustworthy and brutally ambitious. I, are you working out some brother conflict in this novel? Oh, Lord, no. No, I, no, I promised I'm not. <laughs> um, no, well, we, we know that he was ambitious. If, if we didn't have any of Shakespeare's plays and we didn't have any of his poetry... And, and somebody had said, oh, you know, there's this character that we've discovered in the public record office in, in, the, um, you know, in the documents. We'd think of him as a grasping businessman. And uh, again, it's, uh, I, as I mentioned a moment ago, he's going to have this restraining order put on him. It's called a writ of attachment because a man complained that, that Shakespeare had threatened his life. He said, I felt in danger of my life. So he's by no, you know, Yes, he's a genius, uh, but he's not a saint, and he's, he's not some sort of, sort of delicate flower sitting in an attic writing delicate poetry. He's churning out this stuff because he needs to. And if you're a genius and if you're making money, odds are some of your family or friends are going to want to take advantage of that. Probably, uh, although Richard doesn't so much want to take advantage of it. He just wants his brother's help, and, and William isn't, is, you know, I think William thinks Richard's a bit of a nuisance, to be honest. And actors are always a thorn in the side of the sharers. Present company accepted. <laughs> actors are incredibly monomaniacal. I mean, all they want to talk about is, is, their, is their profession. I mean, this may well be true of other professions too, like, I mean, I don't know, lawyers and journalists. And, but, but, I mean, I, I've spent a lot of time with actors in the last dozen years. And, and truthfully, I mean, all they really want to talk about is acting and theatre and who's doing what and who's seeing who and... Some things never change. Huh? I don't think it does. I don't think they change at all. Well, are we going to see more Shakespeare books from you, or, or is it back to wars and, and warriors? I don't think so. I don't think so. Not Shakespeare. Um, but I am fascinated by what happens at the, the Restoration. That is a, a fascinating period, because now for the first time women are on stage. So I am thinking and doing some research into into restoration theater. Oh, that sounds really rife with conflict and and I can't wait to see what comes out. And that. fascinating heroines like Nell Gwynn. Exactly. I mean, wonderful, it the wonderful. Bechdel heroines. test perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. It's been such uh, fun talking with you. I really appreciate it and enjoyed the book. Barbara, thank you so much. Bernard Cornwell is the author of numerous books, the most famous of which are the Sharp series. His latest book, Fools and Mortals, was published in the U.S. by Harper in 2018. He was interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Masters, Here Are Your Parts was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern-Pastor and Esther Farrington. Esther French is the web producer. We had help from Andrew Feliciano at Voice Tracks West in Studio City, California, and Bruce Roberts at ARP Studio in Charleston, South Carolina. We hope you're enjoying Shakespeare Unlimited. 
If you are, we hope you'll do us a favor. Please consider rating and reviewing the podcast on whichever platform you use. It helps us get the word out to people who haven't heard it yet. Thanks. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge and the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.